I got my first pair of glasses when I was four years old. I've got contacts in right now. Um, turns out COVID time has been a real plight for glasses wearers. Glasses wearers say amen. Um, wearing masks and glasses is tricky, so I've been wearing lots of contacts during the last two years. It's about time for me to go in for my next glasses appointment, though. Uh, my next optometrist appointment because the glasses I have, the, the, the film on it is starting to wear away so they look like they're always dirty. Again, something you can only know if you wear glasses regularly. And when you go into the optometrist, they, they put the big thing in front of your face. It's got all the lenses inside. And what do they do next? They ask you, okay, tell me A or B, A or B. Okay, B or C, B or C. Okay, C or A. Wait, we got back to A somehow. Okay. Um, and at first, the differences are substantial. You can tell, okay, my vision's getting clearer. That big blurry E is becoming a clearer E. The smaller blurry letters are becoming O's and P's and Q's. Until finally, the differences are so slight as to almost be imperceptible, right? Where you say, I don't really know the difference anymore. And that's when you know you've pretty much got your prescription. In scripture, uh, today we're going to be looking at the, the, the gospel of Matthew and, and a, a few uh, short stories that uh, essentially are those last little lens changes, A to B and then B to C. And it's what, it, what we're going to find is that the disciples and us are, are going to be seeing Jesus, seeing God, seeing God's work in the world with greater clarity, even if those differences seem slight they are significant and are going to help us to see who Jesus is who the Christ is and what God calls us to in perhaps a deeper and more meaningful way so the story begins at the end of Matthew's chapter 16 and uh, Peter the, the 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 disciple that is always teacher's pet, if you're familiar with the Gospels. Peter's always first in line, always quickest to raise his hand. He brings an apple for Jesus at the start of class, right? Um, Peter announces Jesus' identity as his Lord and Savior in a really profound and beautiful way. But in classic Peter fashion, he only gets it right for a moment before he gets it woefully wrong. And uh, Jesus uh, tells the disciples, great, now that you know who I am, Peter, now that you say you understand who I am, I need to let you know that it's time for me to go and die. So this season of Lent that we're in right now is preparing for that Easter Sunday, but Jesus is letting them know that before we can get to Easter, we have to pass through Good Friday. There's going to be this moment of crucifixion, and then I'll rise on the third day, but this isn't good news for Peter. He says, whoa, wait, no, you can't go and die. There's a reason he says this we'll talk about in a moment. Jesus pushes him behind him and says, get behind me, and then he calls him Satan. Whoa, you think you've been called bad words in your life. Get behind me, Satan. It means like adversary, right? Get behind me, this person who would get in my way. You don't understand what I've come here to do. And then Jesus begins to teach his disciples, and he says this, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me will find them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? 
In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is portrayed as the Messiah, the, this long-awaited um, savior of the people of Israel, the second coming of King David, if you will. And, and Peter was, like the rest of the disciples, raised in this Jewish tradition to, to see the Messiah through a very specific set of lenses. There were all of these assumptions and, and, and inclinations about who the Messiah would be. And for a lot of people, what the Messiah was, was, was this next king, this coming king that would liberate them as a nation. And so when the king is standing before you and say, ah, I get it, you're the Messiah, you're the one we've been waiting for, and he says, yep, and now I need to go and die. What do you mean? That's not what kings do. We're your royal guard now. We are here to protect you, right? And Jesus says, no, you, you don't understand. In fact, you're getting in my way. Here is what my path leads me to, towards, the kind of king that I have come to be. Pick up your cross, he says, and follow after me. What you're trying to protect, I'm actually going to ask you to lose. And oddly enough, in so doing, you will find what you seek. It's this wonderfully cryptic way that Jesus speaks in these kind of circular fashions. My family is still playing Wordle. Anybody else? That's a hard shift in a sermon. I know you're like, whoa, where did Wordle come from? Um, who, who's playing Wordle? If you're watching online, say me. Whoa, there's a lot of us out there. Okay, New York Times made a good investment, I guess. Um, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, like it's too late, the zeitgeist has shipped. Uh, so uh, essentially it's this simple word game. You try to solve a word that has five letters in it. Some letters turn yellow, some turn green. And my family is addicted to this game. It's only one word a day. And our family text thread, I kid you not, is almost nothing but people posting Wordle scores, right? This is how we keep up with our lives at this point. And, uh, and we are so competitive that we will eliminate the first uh, row of guesses uh, because we all use similar starting words sometimes. Like, I use the same starting word every time. And so I don't want my dopey little brother to know, yes, Susan, to know if he sees my guesses, he's going to know it's going to help him solve it sooner. And I can't have that. I have to beat his score every time. So we'll eliminate that first guess. We'll put little fun emojis or a little message there instead. My mom, in, her, in one uh, this past Friday, she, she put TGIF on her first row. Which I thought was, you know, thank goodness it's Friday. Thank God it's Friday. Which I thought to myself, you just retired recently. Every day is a Friday to you. What are you talking about? That's not, that's not a helpful thing to say to me on this Friday. It, all of a sudden, I was back in a Christian bookstore about five years ago in my head. And, and I remember walking in and seeing this display of Joel Osteen books. Are you familiar with who Joel Osteen is? He's a big megachurch pastor down in Houston, Texas. He has a really pearly white smile and much better hair than me. And he has this book called Every Day a Friday, right? And he's got a smiling face on Every Day a Friday. And I saw this book. You know, Joel preaches what's called the prosperity gospel. And it could be summed up in the statement of every day is a Friday when you believe in Jesus, right? Um, the problem is like every day is not a Friday. You know, we learn the days of the week song in my house because I've got a two and a half year old Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. There's a whole lot of days besides Friday, Joel, is my point. Sometimes we're sold this Christian faith lie that when we believe in Jesus, every day is a Friday, right? We begin to think that 
If we just follow after Jesus closely enough, then, then all those problems are going to go away. The king is here. The new reign is, is established. Every day is a Friday right now. Someone should tell Joel what happened on Good Friday. I mean, it, it's a joke and it's not, right? Like, not every day is a Friday. Some days are, are crucifixion days. Some days are days of sorrow and days of grief. Some days turn into weeks and months and years that there are no Fridays. Um, you know, I think Peter uh, mistakenly thought that by acknowledging who Jesus was, that suddenly, here we go, it's time to claim victory with the capital V. And all my problems, all, all of our sadness, all of our grief is now in the rearview mirror. And Jesus says, no. V victory is coming. Victory with the capital V is coming. But it leads through a cross before you get to an empty tomb. If you want to follow me, if you want to be a part of this regime change, if you want to be a part of this revolution, don't pick up a sword and a shield. Pick up a cross. And follow me. We're turning the lenses. A or B? A or B? What kind of a God did you expect to come down? As we begin to see God's purposes more clearly in our lives, we're invited into loving sacrifice. Not sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. Not, not a doormat theology that says, uh, put yourself last and let everybody walk all over you. But a, a theology that says, know who you are. Claim your identity the same way that Jesus does. And then be willing to pour yourself out in love, sacrificially for people around you, even people who do not deserve it. People who will never know your name. People who will never thank you. People who may spit on you in response. But that kind of a loving sacrifice, that's the kind of purpose that God has come here for. That's the kind of purpose that we're invited into. Christianity at its core primarily seeks God's glory and not our own. Peter thought he was about to be second in command of God's triumphant army marching on Jerusalem. That's not the Christian call that he's offered. It's a countercultural call, especially in a day and age like today where we are, are stuck in this loop in a consumer-driven culture where we are asked to be hyper-attuned to what we think are needs. What they really are is a lot of first-world desires, right? Uh, in our family, there's this sort of running, it's a bad joke, but it's a joke whenever there's something that happens in our lives that is honestly a first-world pain, and one of us will say, well, we all have our cross to bear, don't we, Right? But there's truth in that, in that so much of what we are told, you need this, you need this, you need this, you need this. Jesus is calling us out of that loop and to consider how maybe all of these things that we think we need, when we turn our attention outside, we realize we actually have a whole lot more to give than we think we need to receive or take for ourselves. And there's a promise in this sacrifice. This is not an empty sacrifice. That's the, that's the beauty of Jesus' words. He says, the longer you stay hyper-focused on yourself and what you think you need, the end run of that is actually quite empty. And if you've lived that life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I have pastored people who did the high-tower attorney job, who, who went after the, all they could achieve and thought they were crushing it at life, and then they woke up at the age of 40 and realized everything they had was just empty. And they had a lot, but it was empty. And thankfully, there was this sort of transfiguration moment where they realized, surely there's something more. That something more is what God is offering to us. When we begin to see God's purposes more clearly, we're invited into loving sacrifice. And ironically, as we pour that love out, we will find 
rich and depth and more meaningful life as a result. Now, the question the disciples are holding, and the, the question many of us may be holding right now is, okay, I, yeah, loving sacrifice, pour it out, but, but, but how? What do I do? Where does that sacrifice go? To whom do I sacrifice? Especially the disciples raised in a Jewish tradition where sacrifice was central to their faith. They would have said, okay, great, where does this sacrifice go? To whom do we pour this love out? story continues. Beginning in chapter 17, picking up in verse 1, it says this, six days later, six days later, Jesus took Peter, and then James and John, John was James's brother, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain. And there he was transformed or, or transfigured, it says sometimes, in front of them. His face shone like the sun. His, his clothes became white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with Jesus. Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I'll make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Am I a good disciple, Jesus? Am I? Am I? Sweet Peter. While he was still speaking, while he was speaking, look, the scripture says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Stop talking, Peter. Stop talking. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I dearly love. I am very pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. We're not done yet, but we're going to stop there. So this story evokes the names of two prophets for good reason, Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are standing there with Jesus. Moses and Elijah were these prophets from the Hebrew scriptures. These were prophets that Peter would have learned about, heard about as a young boy growing up, going to synagogue. These are prophets that encountered God's spirit on mountaintops, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb. Moses' face, when he came down from Mount Sinai, shone in the similar way that Jesus' does here. There's a reason these two prophets are named and mentioned. It, it causes us to wonder, oh, B or C, is, is Jesus a great prophet? Is this who he is? Peter takes the bait on this. He says, oh, 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 I, yeah, I know what we do. I know what we do with great prophets. I'll build you a shrine, Jesus. Three little shrines. They'll match. It'll be adorable. Come on, let me do this for you. These shrines, the word there is like a tabernacle or a tent. These are like little versions of the tabernacle that the Israelites wandered the wilderness with that housed the Spirit of God during their 40 years of wandering. Peter is drawing upon this ancient tradition thinking, oh, I get it now. Now I see Jesus more clearly. I know who he is. He's a great prophet like Moses and Elijah. But before he can even get all the words out, this heavenly presence cuts him off. In a wash of light, we hear a voice, this ethereal, unembodied voice of God, acknowledging Jesus not simply as a prophet, not simply as a, as a great rabbi or teacher, not even simply as the next king, but as God's own son, as the Christ, we would say. So a lot of times we get confused and we think Christ is Jesus' last name. He wasn't born Jesus Christ, right? Um, Jesus Christ, Christ is a title, not, not, a, not a surname. 
Seeing Jesus as the Christ is to see Jesus transformed and transfigured, bathed in this wondrous heavenly light, face shining, clothes bright, and to, and to fall on our faces in awe like Peter and the disciples. When they encounter Jesus the Christ, it's like seeing Jesus in the divinity of God in such a profound way that their action connotes the same response that Scripture says we have when we encounter God's presence itself, awe. The Greek word there, phobeo, is, is fear, but in this context, like a, a healthy, respectful, sacred fear because you know you are in the presence of the holy of holies. They have no response at this point than to simply fall on their faces in awe because now it's not B or C. Wait, is he a prophet? No, no. Oh my gosh, he's God. We thought we had a king. We have God. And they drop. Maybe the words like um, fear is not a helpful word. Maybe the word we could use today is, is a healthy respect for the holy mystery of God. Right? The parts of God, the Jesus, the Christ, that it, it can be easy to see ourselves standing next to Jesus, walking alongside Jesus, doing life with Jesus, but when we lose sight of the Christ, that, that holy of holies, that awe-inspiring, holy mystery, inescapable, intangible, unspeakable nature of God, then we lose something critical about who Jesus is. To see Jesus as the Christ is to open ourselves up to the holy mystery that we can so frequently try to reason away as good Western Christians living in America today. So frequently we try to suck the supernatural out of the spiritual and out of faith. When we see Christ more clearly, my friends, we are invited into holy mystery. And this is a growing edge for me because I am a recovering cynic. You've already heard that in my message today. Um, I... I love to reason and turn my brain on and use logic to understand God, and yet my faith has been made deeper in seasons of my life when I have encountered Christians, people of faith, who embrace holy mystery in a way that, quite frankly, my friends, most of us in this room do not, simply by the nature of the culture in which we live. I was raised at a, at a, a church not unlike this one in the mid-cities of DFW, filled with really good people who were also Western American Christians and really loved to use their brains and reason away their faith. And, and, and I was raised in that faith, and it was good people in a good faith. And then when I was in high school, a, a congregation of about 100 to 150 Tongan persons joined our church. Tonga is an island in the South Pacific. And Tongan Christians embrace holy mystery. They embrace the supernatural in a way that at first, quite frankly, was wild for me. It was wild to hear the, the, the kind of faith in Christ that they were professing. But as I began to understand them and their culture and their stories more, as I allowed myself to be open to the fact that maybe I don't know everything there is to know about God, I felt my, I felt my depth of faith increasing as well. I'm so grateful for that experience in my life growing up. In the last church I served, there were congregations of people from the continent of Africa, refugees who, you talk about embracing holy mystery, didn't know where all their families were when they were showing up to worship on Sunday morning. Had to put their faith in something more than what they could put their hands on because they couldn't even put their hands on the people they love. Opening ourselves up to holy mystery allows us to achieve what we call that peace that passes understanding. We don't have God all figured out. 
when we're up on the mountaintop and all we see is bright lights and, and voices breaking in and we're not sure what happens and we just fall in awe. And that's okay. We don't need every answer. We don't have to reason our way to God. Sometimes we can simply accept the holy mystery that comes with the life of faith. So the questions continue to, I, I can hear inside Peter's head as he's trying to build these shrines, he's still confused. Okay, I'm called to sacrifice and, and, and I see that, that Jesus is Christ. I see that Jesus is God, but I'm not supposed to sacrifice here. I'm not supposed to sacrifice in the way I was raised. So what do you want with me, Jesus? What do you want with me, God? Let's keep turning the lenses after this mountaintop scene, the story continues. When they came to the crowd, so they've, they've left the mountaintop, Jesus has led them down. A man met Jesus. He knelt before him saying, Lord, show mercy to my son. He is epileptic and suffers terribly for he often falls into the fire or the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, you faithless and crooked generation, how long will I be with you? My goodness, give Jesus a Snickers bar. How long will I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. And then Jesus spoke harshly to the demon. We read this text in the context of its time. They didn't understand epilepsy like we do today. And it came out of the child who was healed from that time on. And then the disciples came to Jesus in private and said, why couldn't we throw the demon out? And Jesus says, because you have such little faith. I assure you that if your faith was the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, that same mountain he had just come down from, you could say to this mountain, go from here to there, and it will go. There will be nothing that you can't do. You know, my friends, sometimes in our religiosity and the trappings that come with church and our desire to have mountaintop experiences and to build our little shrines, we, we can get stuck on the mountain, setting up shrines for Christ while Jesus has already descended to be back with the people once again. Jesus returns to the, the small towns, the forgotten places, the, the hurting people in need of transformation, and he invites his disciples to engage their faith similarly. He's, he's on the mountaintop, and God's voice says, do what he tells you, listen to him. And Jesus isn't there looking at the splendor around him. He's looking down, and he's seeing the community. He says, do you see that town? Do you see that house? Do you see that family? Do you see that boy? If you think the faith is stuck up here on the mountain, where no one else can come, if you think that faith is only reserved for those who have means to get up here, if you think faith is only for you and those who can make it to this little shrine, Peter, do you see? Do you see? That's where your faith is formed. That's where your faith is found. When we talk about our faith, so frequently we can point to those mountaintop experiences but one of the things that I love about the Christian faith and one of the things that makes me so curious about this person and this Christ named Jesus is he says that life is not about necessarily those mountaintop experiences. They can be good. They can be holy. They can help you see things more clearly. But when you get stuck there and you miss the fact that there's a family just down there that needs your help, if you just had a mustard seed 
of faith. You can move that whole mountain into their home. My friends, when we see Jesus more clearly, we are invited into a transformed and transforming life. This is not a mental exercise. This is not simply something that we are invited to know and to rejoice that we know something good. This is something that invites us to live. And to not just live in our own love, but to live in the world and as a transforming and, and as a loving example within the world that God loves too. To worship Jesus Christ fully as Savior means not only falling in awe on the mountaintop, but then returning to the places of deep need or real pain in this world. And rather than bringing them to the shrine that we have constructed, <laughs> instead moving the mountain on their behalf. This can sound like monumental or mountainous work, if you will, but it doesn't have to be. Can I share an illustration, a story with you? Follow me. You know what these are? There's a big old bag full of plastic bags. There's a few of these sitting in our mail room right now. When I first got here as the pastor back in the summer of 2020, I went in the mail room and I thought, huh, this church loves to recycle plastic bags. Why are we doing that for them? I don't understand. You know, we've got the plastic bags in the house underneath the sink, you know, that whenever we need the bag for the dog on the walk, we keep that. I thought, Maybe there's a dog walking ministry. I don't know. Why do we have this? And so I asked someone, probably Judy, because if you want to know the answer to basically any question, you ask Judy. Amen. Amen. And Judy said, oh, let me tell you about Jack. I said, tell me about Jack. She said, Jack, Jack's this guy in this church. Jack's a guy in our church, and he takes bags full of plastic bags. Nothing exciting. Nothing fancy. In fact, a lot of us look at it and think trash, right? He takes these plastic bags home. Jack's retired. He's got some time on his hands. Every day is a Friday, right, Jack? He's got this loom that he works with. Let me show you what he does with these bags. He turns them into this. What it, yeah. Jack's a little sad I didn't tell him I was doing this before this morning because he said, I've got some better looking ones at home. <laughs> this is, if you can't tell, this is, this is essentially a bedroll. This is a, a mat for persons who are unhoused, who are experiencing life without a house or a home. The harshness of that reality the firmness of the concrete, and these plastic bags, this, what we would often think of as trash, Jack turns into comfort and dignity and something resembling maybe a place that someone could lay their head, a tangible means of grace in an otherwise inhospitable world. And let's be clear, Jack is not solving the unhoused crisis in the world, you know? Jack's not going to end homelessness. But what Jack is going to do is make sure that one person knows that when he sees them, he doesn't see trash. And when this church sees them, they don't see someone easily thrown away. They see dignity. He sees dignity. We see someone who needs comfort, who needs humanity. 
And through Jack's simple act of kindness, I believe he's moving mountains for folks in desperate need and seasons of helplessness. I believe Jack has more than a mustard seed of faith. But do you see, it doesn't have to be mountainous, friends. It's turning trash bags into sleeping mats. You don't have to fix all the world's problems, but just a mustard seed of faith can move a mountain for somebody who needs you to move that mountain. When we see God more clearly, we're invited into loving sacrifice. When we see Christ more clearly, we're invited into holy mystery. And when we see Jesus more clearly, we're invited into a transformed and transforming life. May it ever be so. Amen.